And welcome back to the Haunted Heart Podcast. The Haunted Heart Podcast with your hosts, Kenny and Katie. We are here for you today, bringing you your spookiness, your trashiness. We're bringing you who knows what this week with Katie's episodes. Yeah, you don't don't know. know. I know, but you don't know. We really don't know what we're doing because that's how we do it. If you're new to this show... It's a Katie episode. So if you're coming in new to the show to a Katie episode. Bless you. <laughs> God bless you. God bless you, honey. I don't know. Just hang in. Buckle it. up. You just got to just be in there for it. And yeah. like, don't let it frighten you. Yeah. Like, if it's a little much, take a beat. Take a beat. Take, <laughs> take a, a beat. beat. You know, maybe try to maybe flip back over to some of our uh, lighter topics that uh. we've had in the past <laughs> in our library of episodes. Just uh, don't do the old one where we talked about last meals. That was what, like, episode, that was, like, early episode. Just ignore that one. Yeah, that one's still it. there, and it's... it's Only because we can't delete it. Right? I mean, I, we could delete it. But then it'd, it'd be, like, two, four. It's kind of like the ugly stepchild that's, like, you know, it's, yeah, it's there. there. It's there. But it's fine. We have no regrets. No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. <laughs> no regrets. Not at all. <laughs> So this week, I thought that we would, it's been a while, it's been a while since we've dipped into the realm of true crime. So I thought that we would get on back to our roots, if you will. We have a lot of roots. We have roots in horror. We have roots in macabre topics. We have roots in, in, yeah, we have roots in the witchiness. We kind of <laughs> just kind of flow over here. But I thought that we would revisit the realm of true crime, and I am bringing you a case this week. I'm bringing you the murder of Angela Samoda. All right. We're going to dive into a case. We love it. Yes. So on the night of October 12th, 1984, 20-year-old Angela Marie Samoda, or Angie, as she was called by family and friends, went out for a night on the town at the Texas State Fair. I thought you were about to say the Texas Steakhouse for a moment. (laughs) No. No, but the Texas Steakhouse is amazing. They have those really good fried chicken tenders, and they have the chicken tender salad, which you know, is not healthy, but I don't think they call it the Texas Steakhouse anymore. Really, I think it's called like the Texas Steak and Ale. Really? Yes, that's grody. <laughs> yes, not I think down. they changed the name. Down they vote. rebranded. Mm, not here for it. What's the purpose of that? I don't know. To remind you that they also have beer. Like before? we also have ale. Interesting. Got it. No, but we weren't headed to the Texas Steakhouse. There was no chicken tender salad in our future. Angie went out to the Texas State Fair, which sounds like a really good time. I love a state fair. State fairs are amazing. I love a state fair. So Angie was a college student at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Um, She was originally from California, 
mm-hmm. but she was studying in in Dallas, and she was studying computer science and electrical engineering. All right, so very smart mm-hmm. girl. Uh, she was a proud member of the Zeta Tau Alpha sorority, and by all accounts, a very diligent student. This particular night in question, Angie was accompanied by two friends, one male and one female. Angie's boyfriend had declined to join them because he was working in construction and had to get up early the next morning. The three friends went to the Rio Room Dance Club. The Rio Room? Which sounds like a fabulous time. The I Rio mean, Room. The Rio what if you rolled room. the R? The Rio Room. The, um, excuse me, hold on a minute. The Rio Room. Yeah. I don't know why you rolled the, f- I don't know why we both rolled the first R, but not the second one. Because I can't do it twice. The caucasity. <laughs> the caucasity. The Rio Room. There we go. There you go. Yeah, it sounds just like an ad. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, I pictured neon palm trees yes. for some reason. I pictured like uh, flamingo skirts for some reason, okay. even though we're not in Miami. Like we're <laughs> definitely in Texas. But it's fine. Anyway, we went to the club and stayed there until after midnight. According to subsequent testimony of the male who accompanied the two girls, Angie was a social butterfly. She was, quote, going from table to table, talking to people, and she seemed like she, quote, knew everyone. So after enjoying their time at the club, Angie drove her two friends to their respective homes, first dropping off the male around 1 a.m. at his apartment on Matilda Street in Lower Greenville, which conveniently was a five-minute walk from Simoda's condo on Amesbury Drive. And then... Angie dropped off her female companion. The male later testified that when he returned home, he, quote, went to bed and fell asleep. So after dropping off her friends, Angie stopped by her boyfriend's apartment to say goodnight and then returned to her place. Her boyfriend subsequently stated that around 1.45 a.m., he got a call from Angie who told him that there was a man in her condo who had asked her to use the phone in the bathroom. It was not made clear by her if the man was already there when she got home or if she had allowed him to come in. Talk to me, Simoda reportedly said to her boyfriend, but then she abruptly said she would call him right back and hung up. When Angie didn't call back, the boyfriend phoned her and nobody answered. He drove over to her condo immediately, but there was no response when he knocked on the door, which was locked. He had with him an early generation cell phone, because remember it's 1984, So he happened to have like one of the early versions of a cell phone that was provided by his construction job. So he called information who connected him to the police. Police officers arrived on the scene at 2.17 a.m. and broke through the locked door. They discovered Angie's body on the bed, left bloody and naked. A subsequent autopsy showed that she had been raped and then repeatedly stabbed, the cause of death being stab wounds to her heart. Police reportedly suspected Angie's male friend who had gone out with her and the other female friend the night of the murder. This male friend was an architect who was 23 years old at the time and lived in that lower Greenville apartment that we talked about, which was just five minutes walk from Angie's place. Police also suspected that Angie's boyfriend might have been involved as well, but without any hard evidence leaking either of the main suspects to the case, Angie's murder went cold. And it remained unsolved until 2008. Shit, how many years is that? Uh, 1984 to 2008 would be 24 years. Somewhere around that. I think, actually, think it's 26, but (laughs) it's in my script. Uh, But yeah, so it it went cold. And one of the reasons, here we kind of come to the reason why I wanted to talk about this particular case. 
What makes this case particularly of note, I think, is the way in which it was solved, the manner in which it was solved. Okay. Because unfortunately, there are lots of women across the country, lots of them college students, lots of them not college students, and that doesn't mean that those guys are worth any less. There are lots of people all around the country who stories like this happen, right? Somebody gets abducted or somebody's house gets broken into, they're found dead and the case goes cold and we never have a murderer. We never have a suspect. We never have somebody confirmed to sort of pay penance for that. Right. But in this particular case, there's sort of a different kind of ending. So Sheila Wysocki, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that name wrong, went to SMU and was a roommate and friend of Angie. And she was shaken to the core by the news of her friend's murder. Sheila was home visiting family the night of Angie's murder and heard the news of her friend's death when one of her sorority sisters called. Sheila and Angie had first met in 1982 and became fast friends. According to Sheila, their family dynamics were very similar. Neither of them had a dad in the picture. Sheila called her friend vivacious and full of life, always ready to help others. Following Angie's death, Sheila never went back to SMU. She dropped out of college and moved back home with her parents, later moving to Nashville, getting married, and starting a family of her own. Years later, while watching the trial of O.J. Simpson, Sheila, like the rest of America, was introduced to the concept of DNA evidence. Mm. Sheila knew that semen, fingernail clippings, and blood had all been connected from the scene the night of Angie's murder. And she wondered if these new advances in science might be able to assist the police to identify her friend's killer after all these years. So Sheila got on the phone. She claims to have called the Dallas Police Department over 50 times without any success in getting her friend's case reopened. Motivated by the lack of justice for her friend and frustrated by the lack of response by police, Sheila got her private investigator's license in 2005. Holy shit. So we're talking about a baddie bad right Mm -hmm. here. Okay, we got us a badass on our hands. She said, all right, I'm on. And, And she's going about it. You know, legally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I would I couldn't say the same for like either you or I like motherfucker. I I wouldn't even know that that was a thing. Like you have to have a license to be a P.I. Yeah. Big Virgo energy with Sheila. Big Virgo energy with her. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's cool. Um, Yeah. I would just I don't know that I I would just start investigating. Like I'm just (laughs) Kenny's on the case. I'm on the case. I would just buy a magnifying glass. (laughs) And literally I'm, I'm at Walmart and I'm like. I'm there. I've got a magnifying glass. It's got a, a nice stained wooden handle. I'm going to pick that one because it's appropriate. You need to get a trench coat, nice hat. And then you're set. And then I'm set. I'm on the case. <laughs> Kidding. On the case. No, she was. It was really interesting. I watched an, uh, an interview with her. Uh, I think it was by Truly TV. And they um, she, they were talking to her and she was like, you know, I called. I was calling the police department, calling the police department, calling the police department. And they after a while, like they figure out who you are and then they just kind of like blow you off and ignore your calls and what have you. So she she found this lab in New York who could do DNA evidence, who could test DNA evidence through her own research. But they wouldn't work with her directly because she wasn't a member of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of where she got the idea to just be like, okay, well, then I guess I'll just become a member. 
guess I'll just become a PI. I guess I'm just going to do this. I guess I'm just going to do that. So she got her license in 2005. And very interestingly, right on the coattails of Sheila becoming a PI, in 2006, the Dallas Police Department finally reopened Angie's case, assigning Detective Linda Crum to head up the investigation. It had been nearly 22 years since Angie's death. So the police had initially stated that the rape kit collected at the crime scene had been lost in the Dallas floods. Apparently, though, this wasn't exactly the case, since Detective Crum and her team used DNA from the blood, semen, and fingernail samples collected at the scene to try to find a match among offenders with a prior criminal record. Unfortunately, due to the backlog in rape kit testing that still exists today, by the way, in the backlog.org, go there read things, learn things, donate. Uh, It took two years after reopening the case to get any results. But in 2008, the DNA results pointed to a man named Donald Andrew Bess Jr., who at the time of Simota's murder was on parole, serving a 25-year sentence for sexual assault. Ah. So at the time... Uh, He was identified by police as the prime suspect in the sexual assault and murder of Angie Simota. Bess was already serving a life sentence in prison. Oh, oh, really? Was he now? Yeah. So born September 1st, 1948 in Jefferson County, Arkansas, Bess had previously been convicted in 1978 for aggravated sexual assault and aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison and was out on parole by 1984, which is when the police alleged that he raped and murdered Angela Zamoda. In 1985, in a case unrelated to Zamoda's murder, Bess was sentenced in Harris County, Texas, to life imprisonment for one count of aggravated rape, one count of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of sexual assault. So this motherfucker was out, like, one year Mm -hmm. and then went right back in. Exactly. And then in 2008, DNA results from Angie Simota's crime scene linked back to him. Give me the detective here. Suspicious. So the good thing is at this point, we're hunting fish in a barrel, right? So during Bess's trial in 2010, other women testified that they had also been raped by Bess. Apparently, this guy had a long history of it. His ex-wife testified that he abused her and their child during their marriage. They had married in 1969 and divorced three years later. On the basis of the DNA match, Bess was found guilty by a jury, and on June 8, 2010, he received a death sentence. On March 6, 2013, the appeal filed by Bess was rejected, and the judgment of the trial court was affirmed. On August 13, 2013, a certiorari petition was filed to the U.S. Supreme Court and denied on January 13, 2014. In April of 2016, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals refused a final appeal submitted by Bess, upholding the findings of the Dallas County Trial Court. Donald Bess Jr. remains on death row in Polunsky Prison with no execution date set. No execution date. No. As of, you know, the writing of the research that I found. Mm. No date set. I mean, that's that's kind of a thing. Like, um, there's a there's sort of a time frame to get to a sentencing in a mm-hmm. trial, in a particular case, because that's seen as like the closure, I guess, if there can be any closure in a case like this. But he basically, once somebody has been sentenced to death, it's not unusual for them to be on death row for years and years and yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. potentially more than a decade, because yeah. there's just such a, I mean, I don't want to say backlog, because that seems insensitive, but 
a backlog. Um, no, and there's actually the the website that you can go to that actually shows you who's next up to die. Really? Yeah. What website is that? Yeah, I think it's called like next to die or something oh like God, that. Dot com. But it's morbid. Yeah. No. 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 It um it's like next to die or something like that, and it is um it tells you the next inmate that's set to die on death row. Really? Yeah. That's it's that's um terrifying. oh and it's actually was done by the uh, the Marshall Project which we have we've talked about them I believe. oh yeah yeah um in a previous episode but it's the uh, so if you go onto the Marshall Project's website marshallproject.org they have a link for next to die and it tells you uh, like it's got if you go on right now it's got that the next person is a which is really morbid. Richard Bernard Moore is scheduled to be executed in 12 days and 38 minutes. Jesus. Yeah. It's really, it's difficult, isn't it? Because there's somebody, I mean, like in this, in this case, Donald Best Jr. There's somebody who like in the trial court testimonies, and I didn't get into like the nitty gritty of it because it's, it's very, it's very difficult to read court testimony from women that tell the same story over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Right. He was violent. He was angry. His moods would like shift very quickly. He was very um, narcissistic. Like hearing that same story over and over again and thinking like, you know, why didn't somebody, why, why wasn't this pattern exposed? Like, why right. wasn't this, why wasn't this caught earlier? Why did all of these women, especially, you know, Angela Samoda, why, why did we get there? Right. In 1984, when there was a documented, I mean, his ex-wife, they got married in 1969 and she she said he was violent. So it's clear that he had always been he a had violent a history. Man. He had a rap of right. like, you know, this was a pattern of behavior for him. Right. Did they say uh, how they how, how did they meet? No, they didn't. So it, it for all that we know of the crime, it was kind of a random thing. He saw her coming home late and was around her apartment. And I don't know if he was there like when she got home and like asked her outside if he could use the phone and she let him in mm -hmm. or if he had broken in. There wasn't signs of like breaking and entering. So it seems like either he was there when she got home or shortly after he knocked on the door and she let him in to use the phone. Got it. But but clearly she was in uncomfortable as well because she called her boyfriend. Right. Yeah. So it sort of leads you to believe that she sort of sensed that something was off as well. Yeah, that's um, that's the thing. I mean, she was like for me personally, I'm just naturally suspicious of everyone. Yeah. So like when you have situations where people are, are being described as like a social butterfly. Yeah. Right. I feel like those types of people really see um, a lot of the, the good and the people. positive or the yeah. good in people. Yeah. And don't really like expect for there to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Right. So to speak. So it's hard because there's like a, I don't want to say like, like a naivety there, but. It's a desire to help people. I mean, I think she, yeah, she was described by her friends as an altruistic type person. And I think she, like you said, saw the best in people and mm -hmm. wanted just wanted to help and this guy needed to make a call and you know he was potentially down on his luck and she was able to help so why not let and and it makes it more difficult because you know it wasn't 
during the era, I mean, her boyfriend had a cell phone because of his construction job, but like most people didn't have cell phones. Right. And if you wanted to talk on the phone, I mean, there wasn't even really, I don't think cordless house phones were around yet either. Like if you wanted to talk on the phone, you had to go to the wall and like get the phone off the wall and talk on that cord. (laughs) Yeah. And like go around the corner and like. My, Drag it around. Yes, you my had parents, the little yeah. rotary phone. Yeah, there was always a pencil there. I'm gonna tell you what. Yes, you always had a pencil or some sort of like you had a little table with the phone, and there was mm-hmm. always like a pad with some like so you could like so you write your notes, right? Take your notes, <laughs> take your notes. And I remember like at my gra- one of my grandmother's house, just she always had that little setup going on, and I remember just being like. Let me take one of these pencils and like, I was, I was a secretary, honey. I was <laughs> like, oh, I have an important phone call to make with this rotary phone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and like the worst, nastiest, like smoker's wall, yellow colored beige that you could find. Our phone was peach colored. And I remember that it was it was right in the center of the house. And I would take the phone down and there would be like the stretchy cord, right? That would always get tangled. And I would go around to the basement door because the basement door was like sort of close by. And so I would stretch the cord out and then I would open the basement door and then pull the cord under the door and close it. Mm -hmm. And then I would sit on the top two stairs and like have conversations and shit. And I thought it was all secret and private, but it was like literally the middle of the house. Yeah. So I had a Mickey Mouse phone with a cord. (laughs) Very cool. I had a burger phone. Before Disney became the tyrant that it is. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, but I mean, unfortunately, in this particular situation, the cord phone was not iconic. It was unfortunate because, you know, nowadays, if somebody needs a phone, we have cell phones, right? Right. You you have they don't have to come in your house or, you know, if you still have a landline, some people do. You have a cordless phone that you can go and get and you can give it to them and they can stand outside the house and make whatever call it is that they need to make. But back then, that wasn't really an option. So if he was going to use the phone, he was coming in. Right. And yes, it's kind of like where you sort of hear people say that, like, if you go back to like the 70s when, mm-hmm. you know, you had all, you know, these crazy like serial killers and whatnot and people were, you know, used to leave their doors unlocked and stuff like that. And then and then now all of a sudden we're, you know, locking our doors and then all of this other stuff. So I think that it's unfortunate, but I think that when tragedy or something like that strikes it just further builds a wall that we all put up whether or not we we realize it or not yeah and as a trauma response you know i mean you know you start locking your doors because Mm -hmm. you know you're afraid of someone coming into your home right you don't you're naturally suspicious of people because you don't trust as much as you used to or 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 should and and then the people who really need help are seen as suspicious and mm-hmm. don't get the help that they need because assholes like this take advantage of people who are good hearted and just want to help. Right. And it turns on itself because even in situations where those who are naturally suspicious of others, other people's intentions, if they are in situations where they need help, yeah. you know, there's the potential that they could put themselves in further danger because they might like for me i'm not naturally someone who's going to go to someone for help like i could be broke down on the side of the road but i'm not going to your house to like mm-hmm. <laughs> ask you i'm for just a live here now i'm just this is where i'm gonna be <laughs> you know i'm gonna go maybe walk to a convenience store or maybe i'm gonna do something but like i'm not about to go to your house because right. i know if i was in that situation i'm not coming to the door for me all right <laughs> 
<laughs> if I, <laughs> which would be terrifying if I looked out the door and I saw me staring back at the little mm. peephole. <laughs> not good. Not we're not. That's not nightmare good. fuel. What if? What if? Okay, there's the new premise for a horror movie. You your car breaks down on the side of the road, and after much hemming and hawing, you go to like the house that's nearby. But when you knock on the door, you see through a window that it's you coming to answer the door. Fucking nightmare fuel. I know. And then you're fucked. No. It's not good. I'm not going to do it. I'm not sure what happens from there, but none of it's good. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's it does suck. And I think it's very difficult because you don't want to, like, there are people who need help. And if the world became a place where, like, we were all just looking out for ourselves and we ignored people who needed assistance, then it would be a pretty shitty place to live. But at the same time... <sighs> I mean, you have shit like this that happens and you're like, damn, well, you, I mean, she was just trying to right. help you, somebody. You have to be able to protect yourself yeah. while still being able to help others. There's a right. balance to that. Right. And there's also certain privileges afforded to people like, for example, being a guy. I don't have the same worries that, say, yeah. a woman might, you know, walking down the street at night. But at the same time, and, as a guy, you are also perceived differently because right. because by I mean, just psychologically, there have been tons of studies on this. If I, as a woman, were to show up on somebody stoop and ask for help, they're more likely to perceive me as less threatening right. than you as a man. Right. Exactly. And that and that goes into, you know, that's just gender. We can get into like race issues of race mm-hmm. and and how people feel threatened there and. All uh, that shit. Yeah. And I think that, you know, having done this show and, you know, listened to all of these different cases mm-hmm. and all of that has allowed me to sort of, you know, recognize that more so than I did when I was then, you know, prior to like yeah. diving into all of this true crime. I'm assuming that's a result of getting involved with this, but it has caused me to be more self-aware when I'm in situations, you know, if I'm passing someone on the side of the street, like I might create some distance. I mean, of course now because of COVID six feet away, you'll stay away from me or I might show signs of, you know, like I'm not here to like harm you. Like I've been, yeah, it's just caused me to be more self-aware is what I'm trying to say of situations where I could be perceived as a threat. Yeah. And I try to diffuse that and show signs like I'm not here for that. Just sort of, uh, subliminal i'm not here to threaten you i'm not <laughs> yeah it also exposes bias like it by like, me I, excuse me ma'am i'm not here to threaten you <laughs> just want to let you know just want to make sure you understand but it also exposes you know our own inherent biases and and i try to kind of combat against that because it's it's there societally things have been kind of ingrained and i think it's important that we stay aware and take care of ourselves and be safe but also you know recognize Is this a situation that nine times out of 10, if you feel threatened, it's because something is happening that you should probably remove yourself from. But also there are times, you know, we see it in countless cases where there's just young black man who's walking home, who's not threatening anybody. And and that is perceived as a threat. And then suddenly that situation by somebody who feels threatened by this person just walking home gets escalated to the point that somebody's dead. Right. And too often it's the young black male who was just walking home. Right. Right. So so I think while it's important to stay vigilant, also understand that, you know, some of the stuff that's been ingrained in you isn't necessarily serving your best interest or the Mm -hmm. best interest of society as a whole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So definitely to get back to our topic at hand, though, Angie Simota's murder was the only cold case solved in Dallas in 2008 in the whole year. When asked if she felt a sense of relief that her friend's murder had been solved, Sheila replied that her feelings were complicated. Of course, she was glad that her friend's murderer had been caught and punished, but nothing could ever be done to bring Angie back. In 2011, Sheila opened her own private investigative firm in Tennessee to help other friends and family of murder victims find justice for their loved ones. In 2016, spurred on by the resolution of Angie's case, the Dallas Police Department reestablished a unit dedicated to researching cold cases. I love that for her. Mm -hmm. I love that, that she was able to take that and grow it into something that helps other people. Mm -hmm. That it became more than just her own personal connection to the her reasonings for becoming a a PI and then sort of expanded that and became a resource for other people. I Mm -hmm. think that that's an important part of um, what we see in a lot of these cases. And a a powerful part of that is when people can take, you know, something like this and turn it on its head and use it to something that can help other people. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really powerful. And I think that that is, well, like I said, a badass move right there. Right? Love her. Such a badass. I'm a fan. I And this is how, I mean, a lot of times this is how cold cases get solved. It's because right. somebody or a group of somebodies did not give up and they right. didn't allow their loved one to be written off and they didn't allow records to be lost and shit to, you know, just like the rape kit. The rape kit was lost in the floods. Okay, was it really? Or is it in a storage bin somewhere? And there have been... You know, there's countless cases where a case, a cold case is investigated and it turns out, you know, a lot of times, you know, sometimes it's by podcasters, right? We don't do that kind of shit here. It ain't going, but, no, we ain't solving no cold cases here. But like a team will get in on it and investigate and really like throw their weight behind it. And it turns out that like, you know, these records that were supposedly quote unquote lost are really just in a storage unit somewhere. Right. And maybe they aren't st- stored particularly well. There's tons of cases where like, key evidence has been destroyed by mildew or mold or like maybe the building flooded or rats ate it or, you know, it's it's this evidence isn't necessarily, you know, some precincts keep it, you know, they prioritize that and they keep evidence, you know, stored safely and make sure that everything is kind of taken care of and temperature controlled and whatever. And then other precincts just kind of throw it into a fucking cardboard box and put it on a shelf. And from 1984, To 2006, a cardboard box isn't really going to cut it. Yeah. You know, it's it's just persistency. The reason that I wanted to talk about this case is the fact that Sheila didn't give up and she really put the pressure on police. But also, like you said, you know, made it personal and put the pressure on herself Mm -hmm. and did what she needed to do to make sure that her friend's murderer was identified and punished. Very cool. Applause for her. Applause. Yes, most definitely. Around around for her. Around, around, around for her. Around. I mean, around. Fire yes. drink Put next around. time in Nashville, girl. Tennessee, yes. We'll, <laughs> we'll love see. To go to, Maybe we'll see you in 2021. Maybe. I don't plan on going to Tennessee now with the COVID. Maybe we'll see you in 2022. Shit, I don't plan on I don't going know. anywhere. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> We'd love I'm to see here. you sometime. I'd girl. love it. I mean, eventually at some point. Good who barbecue. Knows? 
good barbecue down in Nashville. We got some listeners down Nashville in Nashville. Uh, remind like uh, the Nashville Nashville hot chicken. Mm-hmm. Got some spicy chicken going on up there. Mm-hmm. I'm into it over Love there. It. Not really up there for us. Over. Over. Over there. Over yonder. To the to the left. To the left somewhere. The map. Who to knows? The left. Uh, Past the mountains. Are there states there on the East Coast? Who knows? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that is the story of the murder of Angela Samoda. And yeah, it no longer a cold case solved. I love that, that there's a, a solid ending to that. Because mm-hmm. it's always disheartening when you have these cold cases. Or, you know, if you're watching like Unsolved Mysteries mm-hmm. and you see all of this stuff that just is kind of left open in the air. And it's sad for the people that's involved with that because they don't get that closure. And there's so, so many cases like that. There's so, and so, a lot of them are so many cases are not as fortunate, you know, to have the circumstances or the, um, the drive behind it because it's been so long or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's tragic. And it's, I'm just glad that we didn't end on, I'm glad that we got this, that she got justice and that this was uh, laid to bed. I was, very concerned for your episode today because it's usually not like that. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, if you go to the website for the Dallas, like um, they had because of this case, basically, they made a unit for investigating cold cases. And I went to that website and there and I scrolled and there's just like so many cases that are on that website asking people for information for anything that they know. And it's like, I mean, you can just scroll and scroll and scroll forever, which is like very soul crushing. But yeah, well, with the use of nowadays, we have the Internet. We have a lot of the technology available. I think that it can make things easier, but also as time goes by, like makes it harder. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you got to have the evidence to test. And the thing, you know, the big thing within the backlog.org is there there are rape kits right now that are sitting waiting to be tested. If you go to endbacklog.org, you can actually see a map of the US and you can check your state and see exactly how many rape kits are waiting to be tested. So if you're interested and you have the resources, feel, you know, definitely we support that cause. Consider donating to them to help solve cases just like this one mm-hmm. um, that don't have answers yet families that don't have answers yet friends that don't have answers yet and are and are hurting so but that's our episode this evening. that's our episode and We've now been in your ear holes we have we have been right in those ear holes and um with your consent Consensually, and yes always very important and now we want to do something a little bit special a little bit different um you what? guys may recall yeah we're doing something different so it's been a while since we have acknowledged our patrons on the show, and we wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all of you guys. You may recall an episode from way back when, when we read everyone's names out. Everybody gets an invocation when they become a patron, but we just wanted to read everyone's names as a sort of like re-invocation, re-initiation, just a way to say thank you and to kind of acknowledge all of the people who help us bring you the show every week. Mm -hmm. So I will kick us off. We want to say a big hearty thank you to Deirdre R. And Kaylee J. Tara H. Emily B. Jessica P. Leah B. Tammy O. Heather R. Amber A. Brennan L. 
the Depth of Darkness podcast. Depth of Darkness. Shelby P. Dale M. Dale. Courtney E. Bunny L. Mars L. Virginia, one name like Prince. Catherine D. Johnny D. Ariana A. Kayla F. Amanda. Julia. Avery T. Melissa M. Ashley M. David C. Bellavision Photo. Jennifer W. Brittany R. Christopher K. Christopher W. Brandy H. Darian B. Claire P. Melissa W. The None of This Is Real podcast. Emily A. Bailey P. Holland M. Emily R. Kimberly K. Kelly G. Rachel S. Carissa V. Nichelle H. Joey R. Jessica B. Colton H. Colton. Sharon M. Marie S. Emma A. Cousin Chris. Cousin Chris. Love Cousin Chris. Sarah G. Paige S. Amanda F. Alyssa B. John B. Katie. It's not me. Promise it's not me. (laughs) I used to be on our Patreon though (laughs) when we were testing it. Uh, Denise W. Whitney Z. Special shout out to Whitney Z. Nicole S. Holly B. Amy S. A Paranormal Chicks. Yay. Danielle Z. And Christy W. Bringing it on home. Christy W. We had that conversation (laughs) with her. She was the first. She was the first. She was the first. Wow. She was our first. So thank you guys so much for supporting the show. You have no idea how much it means to us, truly. Um, We wouldn't be able to bring you all this trash content if we didn't have your support. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for being part of the Haunted Heart family. And we love you. From the bottom of our dark, dark hearts. As always, until next time. Stay spooky.